Coming up on Chopper's Politics. So I do quite like eating cake. I'm not a cake banner, I'm a cake eater. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics podcast with me, Christopher Hope, Chopper to my friends, the Telegraph's associate editor for politics. And we're here in my spiritual home in the Red Lion pub in Westminster, a stone's throw from Parliament and number 10 Downing Street. Please be warned, there's a bit of unknown beeping in the pub this week. We can't find out what it is, and we're sorry. Here we go. Happy birthday, Brexit! That's right, on the 31st of January 2020, the UK left the European Union. We should celebrate the fact that freed from the constraints of the European Union, we once again will be able to find our place in the world. Well, that was then, and this is now. Brexit is still not yet done, with EU rules still applicable in Northern Ireland. And just to spoil the party, this week Guy Verhofstadt, that tormentor of Brexiteers and the former European Parliament's chief Brexit negotiator, said he could imagine the UK rejoining in five years' time. So we'll take stop this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Don't forget, it used to be called Chopper's Brexit Podcast with David Jones, the Vice Chairman of the European Research Group of Tory MPs, and Alexandra Phillips, a former Brexit Party MEP, who has an announcement of her own. But we can't and we won't ignore the chaos in the National Health Service, with nurses due to strike again on pay next week, and a feeling surrounding the whole health service of perpetual crisis. We'll discuss that with Helen Wakeley, the Health Minister. But first up, Brexit. Why on earth are we still talking about it? With me now is David Jones, the Vice Chairman of the European Research Group of Tory MPs. David, welcome to Chopper's Politics. It's good to be here. How would you judge Rishi Sunak's first 100 days? Well, he's uh, obviously made a very good fist of steadying the ship after what was a very difficult period. I think what he needs to do now is to flesh out his vision for the country and I think that the first steps he's got to take is to address the constitutional issues that we've got at the moment. By that you mean Northern Ireland and Brexit? Those are the big issues because clearly we need to complete Brexit. We can't complete Brexit while we've got these problems over the Northern Ireland Protocol and I think that that's going to be top of his agenda. But we see reports, don't we, in other newspapers saying that a deal is technically being done, nearly being done, about to be done? I think there are no doubt that there have been technical dis- discussions going on between the EU and the UK, but these are not important discussions in the scheme of things. What is important is a political agreement, and the political agreement has got to be something that restores the primacy of the Good Friday Agreement, because at the moment the arrangements we've got are actually undermining that agreement, and causing great concern to the unionist community. And until that's sorted out, then it's hard to see how there can be any agreement. The Foreign Secretary, James Cleverley, who holds the pen over any deal with the European Union in charge of the Brexit talks, he has told friends, I understand, that these issues you worry about here in Westminster and the politicians in the DUP and others don't really bother Mrs Miggins on the doorstep in Londonderry or Belfast. Well, I'm not sure that that's right. It does seem to me, and I talk a lot to unionist politicians, that the issue of the Constitution is of massive concern to them. There's a general feeling in Northern Ireland, in the unionist community certainly, that Northern Ireland has become marginalised, has become semi-detached from the rest of the UK. And indeed it has, because at the moment they're in a position of automatically accepting laws made in Brussels 
by a foreign government over which they have no control and into which they have no input, and they're subject to the jurisdiction of a foreign court. OK, well, that's the glass half-empty view. The glass half-full view might be that the businesses in Northern Ireland have access both to the European Union single market and the UK single market. Well, their biggest market is the UK internal market. And at the moment, passage of goods between GB and Northern Ireland, and indeed vice versa, is being disrupted by the protocol. We've got checks on goods passing between different parts of our country. And that, again, is the state of affairs that I would have thought Mrs Miggins in London like, would be worried about. Those, those checks, say, on Sainsbury's bread that won't go to Dublin because there are no Sainsbury's shops in, in Ireland, but there are in Belfast, those checks can be dealt with, can't they, by the technical checks? Well, it, it may well be that, that, that they can come up with a solution that will actually improve the matters, but there will still be checks. And just to repeat, in any event... Uh, that is not the issue that worries unionists in Northern Ireland. What worries them is the fact that the Good Friday Agreement is being undermined uh, and the fact that they are no longer, in, in reality, a full part of the United Kingdom. And it's that sovereignty piece that really matters to you because the European Court of Justice has oversight of, the, of Northern Ireland. That's the problem, is it, for the Brexiteers? That's the biggest problem. The, the, the fact is that the sovereignty of the European Union can be said to reside in the European Court of Justice. And it is, you know, to repeat, uh, quite uh, intolerable that a foreign court should have jurisdiction over what a part of this country. What would you rather the Supreme Court in, in, in Well, in I, the I, I think we, we really need a new approach to the, the, the protocol. The protocol is manifestly not working. If it, were, if it were working, then we wouldn't have the problems we've got. So what's the alternative to the ECJ? Well, the alternative is for the United Kingdom to be in charge of its own destiny once again, for every part of the United Kingdom to be a full part of the UK, for us not to be subject to laws made in Brussels, and for us not to be subject to ECJ jurisdiction. What should replace ECJ in deciding this dispute? Well, you could have a straightforward arbitration agreement of the sort that you've got provided for in the Trading Cooperation Agreement. And in fact, most of the problems that we're seeing at the moment in Northern Ireland could be quite easily resolved if you were to uh, move a lot of the provisions into the Trading Cooperation the Agreement. The clock is ticking on this, isn't it? Because you would, you would say, would you, that if Labour win, the, win power in the election expected late next year, then they won't want to revisit this area at all. Well, I think it's ticking even faster than that, and that is because we are probably going to have new elections in Northern Ireland before long if this uh, impasse continues. Uh, and it seems to me that what will happen then is if uh, the, the, nothing has changed, uh, the unionists will refuse to participate in the institutions. What? So it's a continuing con constitutional crisis. Is your solution the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that should replace this protocol agreed with the EU? The Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is very important because itself it fixes the problem unilaterally, but also it applies further pressure to the European Union. And history tells us that the only way that the EU will negotiate sensibly is if they're put under pressure, and that is what that bill amounts to. Is your big worry, though, what the House of Lords might try and do to this legislation, given it is known to be, to use the old language, Remainer biased? Yeah, the Lords will absolutely hate this legislation, and I think that that's why it's, it's becalmed at the moment. The government are not pushing on with it. But I think that the government have to do that, and the reason they need to do it is because if the Lords remain obdurate, 
then we can invoke the Parliament Act 1911 and make sure that the business goes through. This is really crucially important business for the future of our country. And, you know, frankly, we shouldn't be allowing a large number of unelected uh, members of, uh, yeah. of Parliament to, to obstruct it. Many of whom are former MPs who should maybe know about democracy. But moving that to one side, the 1911 Act, of course, is very, very rarely used, the Parliament Act, to overrule the Lords. Would you go further? Abolish it, maybe, if it gets in the way? Well, I think that... I did. I mean, I, I mean, I've thought for some considerable time that it's a ludicrous state of affairs where we've got the second biggest legislature in the world in this country after the Chinese People's Assembly. By number of people. Exactly. And, and that's, all, that's your fault, though, David, because well, you're in a party that makes peers. We, well, we, we should, but actually, if you look at the composition of the Lords at the moment, you've got this disproportionate number of Lib Dems, for example, who are ex- still exerting influence when their party in the Commons has no influence at all. But would you want to go as far as that, as, as abolishing the laws? It seems quite a, a bit of an extreme response. I, 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 I think it's a separate debate, but it's a debate we need to have. I mean, the, the, the Lords have been dodging abolition since the beginning of the 20th century, and I think that it's time to reconsider their future. Other battles too, there's the retained EU law bill on Tuesday in House Lords, second reading. That, of course, is going to sunset any non-necessary EU laws by the end of this year. Could be as many as 4,000 might go. Yes, that's an important piece of legislation. It is important because, as you rightly say, it removes clutter from our statute book. But also, and really even more importantly, it removes the primacy uh, of of EU law in our system. So domestic uh, common law will once again uh, have primacy. I read this week, I'm holding my hand, this... uh, pamphlet from the European Foundation published by Bill Cash this week, Competing Brexit, A Democratic Necessity. Uh, I, I heard that there's as many as 7,000 laws have been passed, rules have been passed by the European Union since we voted to leave, or left rather, three years ago. Is that right? Yes, we, we, we've actually escaped a, a large number of those, except of course if we happen to live in Northern Ireland. So they are, they are now subject to those rules? N- Northern Ireland absorbs laws made in Brussels. So divergence is happening now, isn't it? It is. Which would make rejoining harder, you'd imagine. Well, I, I certainly think it would make rejoining harder. But on the positive side, uh, it means that we're no longer trammelled by uh, what is often bureaucratic EU legislation. We can make our own laws and make laws that suit this country, which, of course, was one of the principal reasons for Brexit in the first place. Do you place. agree with your colleague John Redwood, who just said, wake up Parliament, start using the powers that Brexit gave you? Yes. And in fact, wake up your own, his own government. I mean, there's a frustration, isn't there, amongst people who supported Brexit, campaigned for it, that it was an amazing gift to be given to politicians and, they, and that our political class hasn't really grasped that yet. It, it, it's a huge opportunity. I, 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 I think it's, it's not true to say that we're not doing anything at all. We, we have actually, as you rightly say, pushed the retained EU law bill through. We've also got important pieces of legislation. Take, for example, the Precision Breeding Bill, which allows gene editing in this country, which is banned in the European Union. That's a huge boost for British life sciences and British agriculture. So things are happening, but slowly, frustratingly slowly. And do you accept the excuse from the government that it might be that there's been a lot of headwinds? There's been, obviously, war in Ukraine. There's been a a a once-in-a-century pandemic. Is that acceptable? Well, yes, I think to a certain extent it's acceptable. But now uh, the the, the pandemic is behind us. The war in Ukraine can't stop our legislative process, much as we we, we are concerned for the people of Ukraine. We've got to crack on with this. It's it's really important. And this is a, a generational opportunity that we've been given and we must seize it.
And Conor Burns said, of course, if you introduce that Northern Ireland Protocol bill this week, he said it would uh, risk end power sharing, Sinn Féin would walk off and it would further destabilise the Good Friday Agreement. I think that the Good Friday Agreement, sadly, is uh, destabilised at the moment. And I think that the best way to restore it is to uh, restore normal constitutional arrangements in this country. Do you welcome the help from Joe Biden in the White House on this? Is it helpful? He's certainly not to come to the UK if there's no deal done by the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Well, well, I think we'd all be delighted to see President Biden here, but we can't really judge our response to the Northern Ireland Protocol on the basis of his visit. I think that what he could do is to use the good offices of the United States to persuade the EU to talk sensibly about replacing the Northern Ireland Protocol with something more acceptable. Just finally, David Jones, you're an eminent lawyer. Did you envisage that we'd still be in this kind of mire on Brexit six years after that vote? I certainly didn't. Seven years uh, in June, I should say. I, 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 I certainly didn't. And, and I think that the, the Northern Ireland was always perceived as being a difficulty in, in the Brexit process. I don't think that anyone winding back six or seven years uh, would have thought that the EU would have tried to weaponize the Northern Ireland issue the way that they did. We do know that now. We can fix it, but we need to have the guts to do so. Well, David Jones, Vice Chairman of the European Research Group, Tory MP, thank you for joining us today in the pub on Chopper's Politics. Sorry about the beeping. <laughs> Thanks very much, Chris. Now, Brexit, of course, gave birth to its own political party called the Brexit Party, whose MEPs elected in the 2019 European Parliament elections helped to pressure the Tories into d- delivering the exit agreement with the EU at the end of 2019, after that Tory election landslide led by Boris Johnson. One of those MEPs was Alexandra Phillips. And I spoke to her earlier this week in the Telegraph studio about her plans for a return to politics. Alexandra Phillips, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to be here. Now, we know you've recently, I think you've been uh, presenting the, the TV on GB News, your own show there, you've left that, and, and we thought you'd turned your back on politics after you were a Brexit Party MEP. But no. Yeah, no, I was getting serious political FOMO the whole time I was at GB News, interviewing people. I was thinking back to the halcyon days of when I'd be touring TV studios and throwing in my two bits. And I was quietly thinking, okay, I'm going to manage myself in a programme of slowly getting back involved with politics. I decided to become a member of the Conservative Party. Did you? Yeah, yeah, I still am, actually. Um, Thinking that, you know, I've had my fun on the fringes. Um, Let's get serious now. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the universe has just conspired, really, to push me back into politics. And speaking to lots of people, they've said, well, you know, you've done the bag carrying. You've been the organiser behind Nigel Farage. You were then elected yeah. to the Brexit party. That was with party. UKIP, of course, That was with UKIP, yeah, back in the day. But, you know, those, those experiences taught me a lesson, which is you can have a lot of influence from the wings in politics, perhaps more from the sidelines. Than being in the mainstream. being in a machine, yeah. So what are you doing then? Well, I'm going to now throw all of my weight behind reform, which is, of course, a progression of the Brexit party. Um, It's doing fantastically well in the polls, considering it's actually relatively inactive. It's doing lots of stuff, but it hasn't really sort of broken through. It's not pushing an agenda heavily on television and in the newspapers yet. About nine points in the polls or roughly? Yes. About where the Lib Dems are, actually. Yeah, exactly. And, And at times they beat the Lib Dems. And I think it's become clear when you look at the polling, there's a real appetite 
appetite for something else. I think a lot of the support being thrown behind Labour isn't genuine support. I think when it comes to the ballot box, people find out that there's a lot of shy Labour voters out there and people who don't want to commit to whatever it is Starmer has in mind. I think there's huge disillusionment with the Conservative Party. I think, frankly, people don't know what the Conservative Party is. We've had a year of psychodrama, three different prime ministers, constant tugs of war. You know, this is a party that's been in office for 12 years. It was a party with an 80-seat majority. There should be a legacy by now. And I don't know what it is. I can't pick a single thing that they have initiated or delivered without any outside assistance. you say you're a Conservative Party member. Why not stay in a party and change it from within? Why join? In fact, why stand for office for reform? Because, you know, I've got... I've got a kind of PTSD from every time I become a member of the Conservative Party. I get excited at the sort of opening promises that a particular leader might make. The last time I went through um, this relationship with the Conservative Party was early Theresa May. And I was really impressed by her. She said all of my favourite buzzwords, grammar schools, fracking, Brexit. Means Brexit. Yeah, this is it. She's going (laughs) to do it. And then within weeks, it was falling apart. It wasn't being delivered. When Sunak came in, I've always been a big fan of Sunak. I think that, yes, he's kind of managerial, but I don't mind uh, pragmatism in politics. I also had a hope that he was creative and could have a vision. And actually, whereas Boris Johnson is a great orator, be someone who could see things through. But the closer I've watched, the more I am absolutely convinced that that there's not enough conviction there. There's not enough creativity. There's not a plan. It's all very well saying, you know, we've got to keep taxes high and manage inflation right now, but we're, we're going to be different in the future. Well, tell us if you want to attract business to Britain, Tell us what the long-term plan is. What is the post-Brexit industrial strategy? Because, frankly, there isn't going to be one unless that Brexit comes back under the have, spotlight. Reform can't win more than a handful, if, if that, of MPs at the election. I mean, if that, probably no MPs at the election. UKIP, apart from retaining the seats in the by-elections that were triggered from the defections of the two Conservative MPs... Mark Reckless and... Reckless and, um, and, and um, Carswell. ...didn't win seats, but it completely changed the politics of this country. The most influential party... And reform can do that to the Tory party? I think the Tory party are looking at reform already. The Conservative Party are already concerned about what reform could do, might do, and it's it's an open goal. This is why I've decided, actually... Rather than shouting at the Conservatives on the television screen and thinking, come on, you can do better than this, or get involved with a machine that seems to be at constant war with itself and obsessed with parlour games, perhaps the easiest way to put the Conservative Party into being Conservative is when they suddenly have an electoral or existential threat in their own backyard. We've seen this every single time. If you want the Tories to, to challenge themselves, you have to challenge them. And they've got a monopoly on the right wing of politics, which I think makes them quite complacent. It affords them breathing space to rather than unite, constantly have battles internally. We're told that, you know, actually first past the post politics is great because it means that you can get an outright majority and get things done. And coalition politics is a disaster. Well, the Conservative Party are a coalition. And I don't know which Conservative Party I'm getting at any moment. And if I want the Conservative Party that I want, that I think a lot of Telegraph readers want, then it needs something to hold their feet to the fire until their skin crackles. And that is something that reform can do.
Have you told your friends in the Troy party that you're no longer going to be with them at the election next not, time? Not yet. <laughs> we'll hear it first in this podcast. Yeah. Have you resigned Sorry. your membership yet? No, do you know what? I, I, last time I um, got back into the Brexit party, I had my Conservative Party membership and forgot to cancel it and it dragged on for years. So, um, you know, I should get on top of that bit of uh, admin because they won't. Um, it's kind of important admin, isn't it? Well, I suppose it is, yeah. There definitely would be, I don't know, it gives me an inside track on what they're doing if they want to keep the emails coming and the, the <laughs> yeah, membership yeah. of the WhatsApp groups what, and stuff. Which seat might you fight, Alexander Phillips? I don't know. I don't know because, you know, I'm somebody who, that there's strategy in politics when it comes to picking a seat. You look at the demography, you look at the electorates, you look at where your message resonates, you look at where there's need. You know, who wants you to be there? Who can you deliver for the best? So if I reverse it, where, where's the strength then for reform? Is it the Red Wall seats in the yeah, North of England? It's, I mean, I, at the moment, I think the electoral landscape is constantly shifting sands. We don't yet know where those Red Wall votes are going to go. Are they going to go back to Labour? I, I don't think so. I'm, I, I'm very doubtful of that. Can the Conservatives turn anything around in a year and a half? Well, you know, I think the economic outlook's going to improve organically, which the Conservatives will then take claim for. But it's very difficult to say right now. But I think it's it's those Brexit backing areas. It's those constituencies which are predominantly working class. That's my background. I'm a lorry driver's daughter. And yeah, that is where I feel most comfortable representing people who frankly look like me, act like me, think like me and are massively underrepresented in politics. So it's really a protest vote you think that's driving the reform support. Is that right? Yes and no. I think that voters have been locked in protest for over a decade now and no one's listening they had to listen on Brexit they were forced to and then there was a huge conspiracy to overturn that they're still not listening now populism has become a dirty word but actually populism is democracy populism is listening to what people want and saying we're going to do that and which policies attract you to to the Reform Party I mean Richard Tice told me on this podcast last year how we'd lift the income tax threshold at which people pay 20% of income tax to £20,000 taking £6 million out of paying tax he's talked about open cast mining in the northeast of England, army veterans to become uh, chief constables. Um, what, what, what are the areas you think which attract you to reform? I mean, at the end of the day, Richard Tice is a very successful businessman and he looks at the economy through industrial eyes. He wants strategy. He wants creativity. He wants to drive innovation. He wants a plan for the future, which, as I uh, said earlier, is not going to happen unless we put Brexit back under the spotlight and do it properly. Mm. That's a big commitment. That's my legacy as well. So that's a, a primary Is it mainly reason. pressure on tax then, which is... Tax, well, we've got the highest tax burden since World War II. Everyone keeps saying this. Uh, ironically, you know, six months ago, you had the IMF saying your economy's a, a mess because Liz Truss wants to slash taxes. And then this week, the IMF have turned around and said, well, you know, you're going to grow minimally because your taxes are too high. I mean, you know, I I think you've got to take these uh, warnings and indicators from these organisations with a pinch of salt. But clearly, we do not have an industrial strategy in this country and we need one. We're talking in a week, of course, it's the third anniversary of Britain leaving the European Union. You talked this then about doing Brexit properly. What do you mean by that? And what's what's how is Brexit going for you, Alex Phillips? Well, you know, what is it? Um, it's been so diluted that, it, you know, the chorus of people who want to blame Brexit for things, I'm like, well, point to what's changed. <laughs> point at the divergence that's creating the calamity. Nothing, frankly. You can forgive Boris Johnson to a degree for the disastrous withdrawal agreement because politically his back was against the ropes, that the efforts to just destroy Brexit altogether were, seemed at one point insurmountable. 
and he had to rush something through. It doesn't mean we have to keep it. The trade and cooperation agreement is a bit of a monster. It doesn't allow us to diverge from a, a status quo of when we were a member of the EU in many areas. It actually allows the EU to <laughs> diverge and, and, and devolve. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, it's a monster. And we've got to the stage again, this is why I'm worried about Sunak's approach of pausing the protocol bill in Parliament, which would seek to give Britain control over it, and saying, well, let's not do that. Let's negotiate with the EU. You can't negotiate with the EU unless you're assertive and stand up for yourself and say, these changes or the whole thing's binned, they're not going to move. Do you think of three benefits of Brexit? Oh, there's multiple benefits. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that it's an opportunity. It's a blank canvas upon which to write your own future. So it's, the benefit is whatever you want it to be. Name, name three, though, advantages of Brexit. Uh, the ability to make rules for ourselves. I mean, the fact that, look, the European, the EU's economy was 40% share of international GDP in the 1970s when we joined. It's around 20% today. In about 10 years' time, it's going to be about 10%. That is not the future. The Commonwealth is growing by 50% every single year. So you think we shouldn't be judging Brexit until the end of the decade? It's just too soon. The Brexit is, uh, it's an ethos. It's an ability. It's an opportunity. It's not one thing. It's the ability to do all sorts of things. And this is what we're not doing. We're not forging ahead and taking those opportunities because we're bogged down in a quagmire of middle management, of somehow tolerating the status quo, of not being assertive on the world stage, of not looking ahead at what the future is going to be, where economies are growing, where industries are growing, what Britain of the future should be. And this is my big concern with the the way that governance has you know become in this country is just middle management there's there's no sense of industry and that's what reform can change that's what it has to change this is what we need to inject back into politics well alex phillips a new female face of the reform party who will be standing as an mp at the next election thank you for joining us today on chopper's politics podcast thank you it's been a pleasure coming up we're joined by health minister helena Whateley with her own views on cake and whether it should be banned from offices after all. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. And we're back now with millions of patients waiting for operations and treatment on the NHS. Our nurses are going to strike again next week. It feels like the NHS is in perpetual crisis. This week, the government tried to work out its own plan to sort out emergency care. And with me now is the minister in charge of that policy, Helen Waitley. Helen, welcome to Chopper's Politics. A month ago, Rishi Sunak set himself the task, on you the task, of cutting NHS waiting lists. We're one month in. How's it going? Well, good morning and great to be on your podcast. In the pub? 
uh, in the pub, albeit going to have coffee rather than a beer because uh, it's the morning and I'm not much of a, a beer drinker in the morning. On HealthCap, we're very, very focused on delivery. And clearly it's difficult times for the NHS. There's no getting away from that. Uh, the fact that we had the pandemic and everyone knows how that was hard for the NHS and built up backlogs and people waiting for treatment that would have otherwise happened during the pandemic. And then also this winter, clearly we've had a really tough flu season, the worst flu for a decade. A difficult time for the health service, huge amount of work going on, both to bring down the waiting times for those elective treatments, the ones often got pushed back from the pandemic, as I said, um, but also to tackle waiting in A&E and for ambulances, which I know really, really worries people. There's a few things more worrying than if you call an ambulance and you're not quite sure how long it's going to take. Is it going to take longer than it would have done in the past? And that's why on Monday we published our urgent emergency care recovery plan, which is all about how we're going to do that, bring down those waits for in A&E and ambulances, which is in part about doing things differently in any and and more beds in hospitals and and, and 800 more ambulances through, so but yes remain. so a lot about flow and that's something that and I'm you're spending you're social care minister so yeah uh, I'm social care minister and I'm kind of taking oversight of this whole kind of discharge and flow through hospitals partly actually it's something I have a really strong personal interest in Back when I was a teenager and I was thinking about becoming a doctor, I spent some time in hospitals. My mum and dad were both doctors, so that was relatively easy to do, particularly in those days. And one of the things that put me off becoming a doctor was seeing that somebody couldn't be, actually a teenager herself, couldn't be admitted to hospital into an intensive care unit because they couldn't discharge somebody from hospital who needed social care. So, I mean, you ask anyone in the health service, and they know this has been going on for decades, this problem of it being difficult to So it's to not a Tory problem. People. It was the same problem under Labour, or has it got worse? Yeah, I mean, that was... You know, and, 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 and before Tony Blair, too, it goes... You know, and, and before Labour, it goes, it goes back many decades. Right now, we do have more people in hospital who are fit to discharge but haven't been than How before the there? pandemic. So at the moment, it's somewhere... And it varies day to day, but somewhere between... 13 and 14,000 beds are reported across the NHS so people in them in England who could have been discharged so there's lots of work going on to fix this like right here and now and that was the we've had 750 million pounds put in over the winter uh, particularly to help people discharged into social care and then we're working on how we make this work really differently for next winter and the next year or two ahead which was in our uh, recovery plan. I mean, one thing that's worth saying, because people always talk about, oh, well, it's all about social care, is it's not all about social care. So likely up to about half of those beds are filled with people who are there and they may be waiting for community health care uh, or it may be because of processes in the hospital. And people will know how it is when you think you're ready to be discharged from hospital, but you need the blood test or you need the result from that scan or you're waiting for your medication. Those sorts of things, and they're often shorter delays, but across a lot of people, that actually amounts to a lot of beds delayed. So on the one hand, there's work that we're doing with the NHS on getting those things in hospital to work better. The red tape issue in, in, in hospitals. Themselves. And yeah, processes and how, yeah, how do you get those results back quicker? How do you get people working together? And then the other is on the social care side. A lot of it is to do with really joining up our health and co- social care systems, planning ahead how much care are we going to need in social care for people when they're discharged from hospital? And rather than, at the moment, that's quite often been done, oh, well, somebody needs to be discharged, let's try and fix the, the care here and now. 
I'm trying to get the system to look ahead and plan in advance, for instance, for next winter, as to how much and, and, and commission that in advance and also just get the systems working yeah. better together. You mentioned there that £750 million is going to the NHS and there's a feeling, I think, for many, if you take a step back, that the NHS just gobbles money. Is that a frustration you have? Well, I mean, clearly we have more demand for healthcare, more need, more people living longer with long-term conditions. So, for instance, the number of people who are over 85 um, has increased by almost 50% since, tw- since 2000. And, uh, that's a good thing. That's a good Whee! thing. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. But no, we want people living longer and living healthily. And no, of course, we all know from our no, relatives who are, who are older that you're much more likely to have you know, multiple health conditions when you're older. That is putting more you know, demand, causing you know, more demand on the NHS. And that's one of, one of the reasons why we're seeing these extra delays is people kind of needing more health care. So some of it is, is putting more funding into the NHS. And you know, by 2024, we're going to be spending £166 billion a year on the NHS. At the autumn statement, the Chancellor announced an extra £14 billion across health and social care. Although significantly, £7.5 billion of that for the next year was for social care. So actually that's, you know, that represents something we know we need to do, which is make sure we get you know, the balance a bit better about where we spend our money on that health. He's understood, of course, in politics now, I think the idea of getting people out of hospitals into mm-hmm. social care, that is an understood argument now, isn't it? Is it not time to have a complete rethink of the NHS? Satya Javid, yeah. you know very well, he wants to start charging. Uh, on a kind of one example would be charging for GP appointments so you don't miss them. Like, that also costs billions a year, missed appointments. But having an NHS that's free at the point of need is a really, really important principle but why? in our society. But why, Helen? And I, just one thing I'd say is, is um, the NHS is under a huge amount of pressure. We have just come out of the worst pandemic for a century that doesn't mean, that, therefore, that we should say, oh, well, it doesn't work. we just got to reflect that COVID was a big, big thing. And though in our daily lives, it feels for most of us, it's behind us. I mean, clearly some people here and now have COVID right now, and it's still a pretty nasty thing to have. And there's still people in hospital with COVID. So, but you know, we have got to give ourselves a bit of time to work through the consequences of that. Um, so I'd say, you know, don't jump to just say, well, it doesn't work because of, because of that. Actually, and one particular pressure on GPs, for instance, this winter was the strep A uh, scare and huge numbers of parents, understandably, going to a GP to try and get antibiotics. I mean, in my local GP surgery, it was kind of standing room only from people come a really long distance. Now that's gone through and you know, many GPs, mine uh, specifically, said, no, they've got appointments, they can see people. So we shouldn't think that, I say, the current pressures mean that we have to uh, no, throw it all away. What we do need to do clearly is no, there's a grip here and now and there is doing things differently. And for instance, caring for more people out of hospital more of a shift towards prevention. Now, people have talked about that, but it's been difficult to yeah. do. But we're in a better place to do it. I'd say a couple of reasons why we're in a better place to do it. One is structurally, and this is our integrated care systems that we're setting up, which genuinely bring together health and social care and look at population health in a way that really, really hasn't been done before. And in a much more bottom-up way, it's not top-down. And the other is some of the technology we've got and science and the fact that, you know, for instance, with a blood test, you can pick up uh, around 50 different types of cancer yeah. that somebody might have before you even have any symptoms. So, so there are things make, you can do which are preventative. That will save money over the, t- over the piece. And, but, so is Sajid wrong then? Yeah, I, th- I disagree with him. Right. I don't think we need to do that. Right. I think there are other ways that we can get more for our money 
in health and social care. Um, I mean, and you know, one example which you know, I spend time looking at is being in a hospital is expensive. So it's expensive for somebody who doesn't need to be in hospital to be in a hospital bed. If you're at home and having home care, that's better value and really important. It's clearly better for the individual because you tend to recover better if you're at home while you lose your health when you're in hospital. I mean, I had a grandma who was in hospital for five months. She went in, you know, able to walk and live independently and she wasn't when she was discharged. You're, you're, so you're, that's what it does to people. Yeah. So we've got to shift the way we care for people. Your parents were, were, were doctors? Are they retired now? I've retired, yeah. What do they, what do they tell you about the NHS? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I mean, conversations going about the NHS go back into my childhood. I bet they do. I mean, yeah. You've got of, an unusual insight from a minister to be totally absorbed in the whole thing you're talking about and dealing with data. Totally. I mean, it's why I got involved in politics, mm. is, is literally sitting, sitting around the dinner table with my mum and dad and my teens yeah. um, and their frustrations yeah. with things like bed so you know it all, and how the you? NHS... So, I wouldn't say I know it all. So over, over Christmas, let's, um, let's take into the Wakeley House over Christmas. What, what, what are they saying? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Helen, sort this out. Oh, you um, can do it. Yeah, my, my father has very, uh, very strong opinions um, uh, about these things. <laughs> about these things as well uh, there actually one thing and that's a recent personal experience is on hospital visiting uh, and, and um, as I said in parliament actually my mum was in hosp- hospital last year uh, and um, it was a point where the hospital she was in wasn't allowing visiting and I felt for myself how incredibly hard uh, and imp- that impotent was. you feel don't you yeah, it's not, I mean like, there, there was like what can you do? And we didn't know whether she was going for me or my father, whether we would ever see her again. And that's one reason why I feel really strongly about visiting and, and making sure that we do actually make sure that family did, members... Did you worry that the, the, the voice of the patients is lost a lot in, in health policy? Often we see on TV, don't we, uh, the union, the doctors talking to the employers or the ministers, but where's the voice of the patient in there? The people, the, the millions waiting for some, some care. And we look, look at the strikes at the moment. There are people who are in pain who can't get... Get, get get treated because of the problems with the NHS? Do you think the voice of the patient is ignored? I don't, not, I don't think that. I think, But I think it's a really important point you make that clearly uh, you know, healthcare workers are very, you know, they're very articulate, well represented by organisations like the BMA, the RCN. I mean, <laughs> often actually you know, doctors and nurses I know say that those unions don't necessarily express their own views, but they're clearly you know, very strongly represented. As, you know, as someone I've previously been uh, the NHS workforce minister and did a lot of work on NHS workforce before I was uh, a, an MP, um, I care a lot about the healthcare workforce and, and social care workforce and feel, feel very strongly, you know, the quality of care depends on the workforce. Yeah. And, well, no one doubts that. And yes, but it is true that you know, whether it's nurses, whether it's care workers, they tell me and they feel there's like the feeling of not feeling valued is a problem and we have to make sure that those working in healthcare who are after all caring for others need to know that they are cared for so they're important but as you say first and foremost you know the purpose of our health system and our social care system is to care for the people who need care so the patient voice uh, and you know, the person cared for voice and in fact the carer voice is something really important um, so something I spend quite a lot of time thinking about is uh, and this is both social care and for the NHS, is is the the patient's carer in the conversation as well. Because sometimes they can be overlooked. Sometimes a decision can be made. If, for instance, discharge, when grandma's discharged, grandpa's going to really have to look after her to help her, help her with the early days at home, for instance. So you've got to have 
the right people in that conversation, not only the patient, but also their family. You mentioned carers and nurses. Why not give them the money they want? First of all, clearly government has a responsibility to be fiscally responsible. And the Prime Minister has rightly said, we've got to get inflation down. One of his five priorities is to halve inflation during the course of this year. And so while, yes, you want, whether it's nurses, whether it's teachers and everyone in the public sector, you want to be well paid. Um, But there are many parts of uh, the public sector who are calling for uh, above inflation uh, pay rises at the moment. And, and clearly those working outside the public sector and the private sector also want pay rises. So we have to be really careful that we don't make decisions on pay that actually kind of chase up inflation when the thing that will make the most, you know, be most beneficial for everybody in the sense of having more money in their pockets is by bringing inflation down. That's a tax cut, as Jeremy Hunt told us last week. Yeah, that's the best tax for everybody is bringing inflation down. And then the other thing I'd say on on the process for on pay is is, we have the independent pay review bodies. They are really important. I mean, talked about more in the last uh, few weeks than ever before, I think. But it is a process that brings in the evidence about what is the right level of pay for those working work in the sector. The next, uh, so the work year. for the next financial year has, has started because you know, as of April, we're into the next financial year and the next pay settlement. But the government fully accepted the recommendations of the pay review body for this last year that's just passed. On, on average, this has got a pay rise between 4 and 5% and those on the lowest pay were getting up to 9%, reflecting those to go up for what next, that... next financial year? Well... I don't think we're in my place to preempt what the pay review body will decide. But what I know when I was the workforce minister looking at this is, you know, they did a really thorough process which looked at inflation, that looked at the similar or the pay you get if you were doing something similar but outside the health service, for instance. It looked at the whole question in the round to come up with what was a fair settlement. Just finally, and thanks for your time today in the pub, uh, Helen Whateley. Do the Tories, your party, have a sleaze problem? I don't think so. And I don't think you should judge a whole party based on some individuals. I mean, clearly there's been these are some difficult, who, these are difficult things. About, aren't we? Yeah. But no, I don't, I don't see that at all. Um, and actually, you know, the leadership of the Prime Minister on this and his you know, determination on uh, integrity, accountability, professionalism. And you know, I see that in the way that he works and in the approach that he takes, uh, which is something that you know, I find really inspiring. You know, I'm in politics because I want to make a difference. We talked about healthcare. That was why I got involved in politics, to you know, try and make the NHS better, try and make our health and social care system work better. Really, like, that's what it's about. Um, and when I go back to my constituency, talking to my constituents, it's about like doing the best thing mm. for them to make life does, better. Does, does, does the government feel exhausted to you? I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, it's no question these are difficult times. And in opposition, you can kind of just shout and commentate. While in government, you're having to deal with the stuff that happens Events. all the time. I mean, don't I know from being a minister through the pandemic? You know, there we were. And I became care minister to drive forward reform. And actually had to deal with the pandemic. That said, you know, there are things which we can do differently uh, following that. And so, so the focus here and now is on grip and delivery. And you know, for me, as a background in business, I like getting stuff done. But also, we, we're looking ahead and how we make things better in the future. And as we get the grip on the delivery, then I'm really looking forward to talking about that and Just more. finally, the most important question to ask you, what's your policy on cake in the office? Should it be banned? So I do quite like eating cake. Yes. Usually around like 
tea time. Tea time, yes. <laughs> for me, with a cup of tea. Is it a gateway so, drug to obesity? Uh, but, I mean, on a serious point, clearly, no, we, we do need to be careful about how much sugar we eat. Yeah. Um, I try and deter my kids from eating quite as much sugar. But you wouldn't ban cakes from your office, and your team I'm, are behind you. No, 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 I'm, 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 like I'm, I'm not a cake banner, I'm a cake eater. <laughs> okay. Helen Waitley, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all my guests this week, David Jones, MP, Alejandra Phillips, and of course, Helen Waitley, MP. Let us know your thoughts about their comments. Email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or on Twitter, we're at Choppers Podcasts. Thank you to my brilliant team of producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And if you need more Chopper in your life, and if so, I can't blame you, please do sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. You'll get Westminster Whispers and Insights delivered straight into your email inbox every weekday. The link for that will be in the show notes to this episode. And please do check out my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out every Friday evening at 7pm and in Saturday's newspaper. And remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. And until next time from the Red Lion Pub, cheerio!